0: I was always told the adage, never give a creative a problem that you couldn't creatively solve yourself. So I never go into any meeting without a conversation I could have with a creative director where I'd say, here's my version of what could be done to solve this.
1: What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Alana Bryant, who runs Special Forces, a collective of senior strategists who focus on how to solve problems. Alana, welcome.
0: Thank you. Great to be here
1: you didn't know this. I met you 10 years ago, almost to the week. I came over to New York 10 years ago, right in the middle of winter around the Super Bowl, spent two weeks here meeting different people in different agencies. So that's how far back we yes. go. So it's good to be I'm, talking to you 10 years later.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't put you off. So I feel, I feel good about that.
1: Well, I'm, I'm unhappy that you didn't remember me. <laughs>
0: But as I said, I'm glad that my talent spotting skills are better than my memory skills. Um,
1: <laughs> well, you didn't put me off, but you didn't put me on either. So, <laughs> you know. so we're going to talk about proving your worth today. And we're going to talk about the pressure that a lot of strategy folk and account planners face in agencies around the world. And sometimes it's different in parts of the world. Like, how do you prove to the company that's hired you to do the thing you thought you were there to do? that they should value that and want that and actually help it happen. And we're going to start your story in London (laughs) in the 1990s, where apparently you were known as the American.
0: Yes, I was pretty much one of the only Americans doing strategic planning in London at the time. I think there was one I other. Took you there. I actually went to graduate school in the UK and really enjoyed it. And the marketing and advertising industry in the nineties in the UK was really exciting and dynamic and really appealed to me. So I decided to stay on and and work there.
1: And what was the vibe towards you as a representative of the United States of America as someone who thought for a living in advertising <laughs> in London at the time?
0: Well, as you pointed out earlier, there's a lot of pressure for strategists to prove their worth and intelligence. And I don't think being an American predisposed you to being seen as intelligent quite the same way as being British in America does. It sort of lends this gravitas to your thinking. They automatically assume that you are extremely well-educated and intelligent about what you're talking about. But uh, I think the opposite is pretty much true in, in the UK. So you better you better know what you're doing.
1: <laughs> Were there many other Americans in the UK advertising system back then?
0: No, there were a few Australians, but they were also, I would say some of the Australians were in the same boat uh, as I was, but it was a great learning experience for me, especially to be trusted, eventually working on some of the most British of brands, you know, like the News of the World or Pot Noodle or Ambrosia Custard. I ended up working on quite a lot of beloved British brands. So if they'll let you touch those sort of loved brands in Britain, they they figure you understand British people enough to to market to them.
1: Okay. So how did you prove your worth to earn that trust to lead important UK brands in the UK (laughs) as an American? How did that happen?
0: Well, I do think in the 90s, the system for strategists was quite different. There was a lot of rigorous training and mentorship. So I was really lucky. I had some great mentors and folks like Simon Clemo, who runs Clemo Hornby So I, you know, I obviously spent a good kind of five years doing more of what I would sort of say apprenticeship strategy, where I was learning and watching and taking IPA courses, which unfortunately you don't have here. And, you know, trying to learn the craft, if we can call it that, or at least the skill set. And, you know, I think some of the same skills you'd use here today, which is really just making sure that you have done your homework, that you know the data, that you have an opinion that's based on a lot of research and knowledge. Yeah. And then you can assert your thoughts and opinions.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So words like rigor, and that often accompanies the idea of being classically trained. Yeah. Those words kind of connect to the theme of proving your worth, But I just want to focus on the word rigor right now so that if someone's relatively new, they're trying to get traction, they're trying to be taken seriously, how much rigor is enough and what does that word really mean when it comes to account planning? It's definitely a verbal tick that our industry uses, you know, need to be rigorous, need rigor, but what does it mean?
0: Well, I think it means to do your homework. And, you know, I think it's Fran Lebowitz said, think before you speak and read before you think. (laughs) Don't miss the important steps of being prepared and doing your homework. Uh, That does take time and you have to step back. And strategy to me is much more like a chess match. You know, you can't do it in real time. You have to sit back, look at the situation and think and then move. And because of, I think, the speed of marketing and thinking and business today, a lot of people kind of miss that step. You know, a common mistake younger strategists make is they feel they have to be the person in the room who has the answer. And I mm-hmm. believe and often advise that your job isn't to have the answer. Your job is to go find the answer. You don't have to have the answer in your back pocket. And in fact, the best strategists say very often, and I say it very often, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll go and find out. And that's the sign, I think, of good strategic thinking and rigor. You don't jump to conclusions. You know what you know. But more importantly, you know what you don't know. And you take the time to read before you think and then think before you speak.
1: Okay. Now, I sometimes talk about issues that I see specifically with strategists and account planners in the USA, and every now and then someone in the UK is like, why are we talking about that? I've never seen that issue. And if I see that they're in London, it's not that they're not allowed to have a point of view. It's just that they just don't understand the US context. So in the 1990s, as an American in planning departments in London, the home of planning, (laughs) did the planning departments have to prove their worth to clients constantly?
0: Hmm. I think they did need to prove their worth, but not to the degree that the U.S. does. I mean, strategy is fairly new in the U.S. in comparison. It's been going on since the 70s and 80s in the U.K. and built into the process and paid for by clients, whereas strategy is a much newer part of the process here in the U.S. And often, sadly, a lot of agencies or companies bring on the discipline, and particularly in the agency sphere, don't put the financial burden on the clients without building it into their process as part of the worth. So without integrating strategy as an integral part of the agency philosophy and process and output, you know they suddenly have this additional cost and there isn't the infrastructure and the will of the agency to say, hey, this is part of what we do and we can't produce our product without this strategic part. And once that's built into the system and integrated, I think it's a lot easier for strategy just, just to, to do their job without feeling totally. a pressure to add value.
1: Totally. I want to ask you about this because when I've been pulled in to help planning departments in different agencies as an employee, I would always say you need to make it the fault. And nobody would want to make it default. And so that led to me having to go teach people planning. And then you find decks from five years ago where someone else has done that. And then you find ten other people have done it. And you're like, well, nothing's changed. Therefore, what is this? Now you talked about basically that planning is just part of what we do. And I think that's to separate it from potentially the American mindset, which is very intriguing, which is it's something we sell. Yeah. And is it fair to say that in the UK that planning might be something we sell, but really it's, it's just how we operate. It's default and that in the US it is kind of like, would you like fries with that?
0: <laughs> yes. Yes, it's not, not? it's not baked into the process. Yeah, I mean, I think agencies that have a strategic process – And particularly, you know, I won't say that are rigorous word, but one that really leverages the potential of strategy in the process, you know, have a much easier time and probably happier and more satisfied clients that don't question the value of it. I mean, look, I know people have a debate about planning or strategy, and I probably have an un-PC thought there, which is that even the name strategy is adding value to the process, whereas planning, you think, oh, well, I'm not sure where that fits in or we don't have enough time to do that, so we'll take that out. I always thought strategy is a clear explanation of the process and output than planning, which to me always felt like a misnomer. The adage in the 90s for strategists who were looking to join an agency was, this was back in the day where every agency was, you know, three white guys' names over the door, but you wanted to make sure that one of those names was a strategist. So if it wasn't, you know, Bartle, Bogle, and Haggerty, and you knew that there was a, a strategist baked in to the agency's name, then you should avoid it. That was always the adage. But now, of course, we don't usually have people's names over the doors. But you still want to make sure that the agency has a process where strategy is built into the timeline, the budget, and the actual you know, IP of the agency, the process. Mm-hmm. And I often tell people looking to join agencies to look for that and ask the mm-hmm. prospective agencies for it.
1: I love that. I love that. You mentioned clients as well. Any differences between client expectations, interest in, and even you know understanding the basic principles of what strategy slash account planning is in the UK compared to your experience in the US? And also I ask that because a word like strategy is, is definitely more natural to the US environment. Account planning does feel British. And you've got to use words in a way that makes sense. But in in the US, if we're talking clients, that word strategy or strategist runs into the MBA very, very quickly as well. And and who gets to do strategy? And now we've got 10 strategists in a meeting from different agencies. What's this all about? So client expectations and appreciations of account planning in the US versus the UK, especially to do with understanding the value, the worth of the account planner.
0: I do think, obviously, probably because clients in the UK and Europe have had strategy as part of the process for longer, they may be more familiar and comfortable with it. But my experience in the US is that if you solve problems and clients can see the added value and they believe you are an ally who are there to help them. Then they usually see the value. Now, obviously, that often happens to occur after you've gone through the process because if you're just a line item on a sheet, you can even be working with a seasoned person and they'll say stuff like, "You know, oh, can, can we take this out of the process? Do we need this?" Oh, we've done a lot of research already. We'll take this out. But obviously, once you start working together, I think that's when clients can see their worth. and And I think you see that nowadays anyway in the u s, where a lot of clients now have strategists in-house. In fact, a lot of strategists that I' previously, worked with or were on my team in the past are now running departments within clients doing mm. brand strategy or innovation strategy or design strategy or just okay. marketing.
1: Before we leave the UK, could you tell us the story about Pot Noodle specifically how you <laughs> provided value, proved your yeah. worth on that particular project?
0: Oh yeah. So Pot Noodle, I don't know how to describe it. It's a loved, quirky, I would say indulgent brand and in that it's, it's essentially a junk food brand, but it's hot noodle soup. I guess it's a good example of perseverance and part of the strategic challenge of strategists not to just find where the most creative opportunity is, but to help the clients get to the right brief because they might be starting in the wrong place. So I'll quickly run through the pot noodle case study. So when I started working on this project with pot noodle, proper food was becoming more popular among young men in the UK. They started cooking for themselves. And by that, I mean like omelets, you know, very low level. Jamie Oliver stuff, but their consumption of pot noodle had gone down because they were making an omelet or making something that seemed a bit healthier. And the client's instinct was to go back to a strategy from 10 years earlier, which was a health and nutrition strategy, which ironically had been targeting moms and kids. And it was a campaign called Ned Noodle, and it was about fitness and health. And that was the brief that we got, promote the health benefits of Pod Noodle. And it took six months of strategy to basically work with the client. Again, You know, rather than fight from the beginning, we wanted to kind of prove that sort of hypothesis out. So we went to research research with young men. And, you know, one of the challenges as well is that pot noodle had run out of many of the health benefits that it used to be able to say. I mean, I think it had even taken the peas out of it. You know, there wasn't many health benefits other than the fact that it was hot and it was vegetarian, but it was also called beef and tomato flavor. So the fact that it was vegetarian actually ended up worrying people in focus groups. So we went through the whole process of following their brief through, taking it to consumers. And when the brief wasn't working to try and fight back and reposition Pot Noodle as a healthy brand, it opened up the door to possibility of basically the strategy we really wanted to push, which is actually we need to celebrate Pot Noodle as the ultimate anti-food. It was actually an unhealthy choice versus healthier food alternatives. And you should just revel in that and enjoy that. And we used the focus groups, which also talked about the fact that basically it was an embarrassing food alternative that you did at home by yourself when you were drunk most of the time, and you kind of hid the evidence under the bed. And we basically came back to the kinds and said, look, you know, pot noodle, it's it's not really food. It's like I'll just use the British term. We said it's really like a food wank. It's the thing that you do that's not quite a food. It's not as healthy and satisfying. But, you know, when you have an urge and you need something right now, it's a second best alternative. So we ended up calling it sort of a culinary one night stand. The thing you cheat on your proper food with and that led to a campaign with another team that came after me called pot noodle the slag of all snacks and it was all about celebrating the naughtiness and the inherent badness of pot noodle rather than the original client brief which is try and reposition it based around goodness what
1: was that word swag or slag
0: slag (laughs) slag is slut in the uk well there's i
1: mean there's other meanings of that word are you using it in that way
0: Oh, yes, that was the campaign. Yeah. Well, if you look online, the campaign ended up talking about basically there was kind of the proper food, which was the wife and kids and the cucumber sandwiches. And then there's the naughty, indulgent food that you are slightly embarrassed about and is, is illicit. Basically, it was really celebrating that role of pot noodle as a hot satisfying alternative to, to proper food and to just celebrate oh, that.
1: I can hear a heavy tisk tisk from all PhDs of gender studies around the world right now. Uh, <laughs> look, I do compare different scenes and cultures in different countries. It's, it's largely because I find it fascinating mm-hmm. that you can think in a particular way in one place and for that thinking to not really work somewhere else. It's, oh, it's yeah. not to really stereotype things in a mean way, but like that kind of thinking, we know the answer to this. Could you have presented that to an American client?
0: Probably not. No. That was a very overtly sexual strategy. And in fact, I actually remember presenting it to the client and having a debate whether we wanted to call it culinary masturbation or one night stand. And you know, you could actually have that. Debate. I mean, there's obviously this was in the 90s, but yeah, you, that's not something that Americans feel comfortable talking about. I mean, you can have a cheekiness to a brand, but I think you know, if I'm being brutally honest, Britain is a very different culture. It's got a much broader acceptance of humor and edginess to marketing and brands in general in the UK. So they're, and it's a smaller country. I mean, the end of the day, the U.S. is a huge, huge country, and clients are very risk averse. And culturally, it's also a different time period. I mean, that was the That was the kind of loaded magazine and lab culture. And we're in a very different phase. And we have very different consumers today. It Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they don't accept humor, but obviously probably spent the last 10, 15 years working a lot on purpose-driven strategy and looking for brands that give back, you know, but there are smaller brands that can still have that sense of irreverence, but they tend to be a little more, obviously direct to consumer brands. Like you can see a lot of that mm. kind of irreverence in your feed in direct to consumer brands that are ready to take on edgy subjects and illicit topics and uh, irreverent humor.
1: Okay, yes or no, have you focused for the past 15 years on purpose-driven brands to make up for your pot noodle thinking? <laughs> Yes no. Come on. There
0: were a lot of people who worked on pot noodle. <laughs> I don't, I don't feel guilty about it, but yeah, I guess I'm thinking about it That's now true. and maybe it does. it maybe it does sound terrible. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, um, I'm, I think it's great to be honest, that brands are able to contribute to culture in a systemic way and not just an advertising way that you did, you know, you, hadn't, you know, whatever in the 90s. I mean, brands can actually make a difference in a systemic way. So there's a lot more opportunity to work on brand purposes and causes that really can add value to the world. And that's Mm -hmm. something that really didn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I buy toilet paper that funds toilet building facilities in Asia. You know, you buy products that will you know, give back to organic farmers. There are so many things that you can do and impact that you can make in culture today that we couldn't do. Or was is prevalent just a short time ago.
1: So I think this is going to be my final UK-USA question. Rachel Mercer, who's a friend, she was until recently a very successful head of strategy at RGA in New York. And she talks Mm -hmm. about her time in the UK at an agency. I think it's an agency, that, not that she would name it, that a lot of us kind of knew and were fond of from a distance. And yet her experience that she's talked about on this podcast, and I believe she's written about it, is that she was often not allowed to get onto projects. I don't know if she was disinvited or uninvited from things, but wasn't allowed to get onto projects because she wasn't Oxford or Cambridge. So (laughs) the question to you is in the 1990s, being an American and specifically an American woman, where we have often heard about how female creatives and female planners get put on like the female accounts, what was your value? What was your worth to where you worked? How did they see you? What did they put you on?
0: Well, I was quite comfortable speaking my mind, obviously hoping that I'd done the right homework. So I think that's something that was valued. Americans, while they were not necessarily seen as intelligent as, you know, an Oxbridge British person, they were certainly seen to be outspoken and, you know, willing to stand up for ideas and take a stand on a topic or stand up for an idea or the agency or a new direction. That was probably something that I was seen to bring to the table. And I remember... When I was at Simon's Palmer, which was Carl Johnson's first agency, I think there were only three women in the whole agency. And I remember working on one account and I was the only woman there. And it used to descend into what I would call the rugby scrum. It was just all these guys. And I was only a year or two into strategy. And I would say, hey, guys, there's so much testosterone in the room. I'm going to grow a mustache if I wait here any longer. So I'm going to go out and you guys resolve this issue and then I'll come back in and take care of it. So I guess I could sort of hold my own in the rugby scrum, but I see it as a benefit that I don't walk into a room assuming that I have a right to be listened to. I know that I have to earn that right by whatever I'm going to present or whatever I'm going to share. And that's from probably being the person in the room who is assumed to not have any value to add being the American
1: very cool, very cool. Well, I want to now take us to when we first met mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Around that time, the agencies that seemed to be kind of hip and attractive included mm-hmm. Huge, Mother, yeah. Droga 5, Anomaly, Naked, Big Spaceship. There was this cluster and there were other agencies as well, but they were the ones that kind of got my attention and that have kept in my memory for the past decade. And then there was also Strawberry Frog, which was on a tear for quite a while. Yeah. How did you approach building planning into just the way we do things at Strawberry Frog?
0: So as a startup and one that had an agency philosophy, we had an advantage that sort of we worked into the system, which is that no one ever came to Strawberry Frog for some incremental work, right? They were looking for a change. They were looking to do something big. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of other agencies like Drogan, Huge, and and others. So we used that as an opportunity by building an IP that allowed us to bring in a philosophy of purpose-driven branding and cultural strategy from the Get go with clients. We created something called Frog Logic sessions, which essentially were cultural strategy and purpose-driven strategy workshops. Where we would sit down with a client and workshop for like half a day through, you know, some of the key category challenges and cultural opportunities. And together we would sort of map out the brief in the cultural opportunity space. And because that was built in from the process from day one, I mean, it was literally something you did, you know, baked into every single scope of work and proposal, the clients very quickly saw the value of strategy from the beginning, and therefore, you know, you were seen as a partner and your contribution was valued, you know, as you went through the the process. And I think TBWA did this brilliantly as well with their, you know, disruption methodology. I think any agency IP in general really should make sure that they're building the strategy opportunity in from the start and that the strategy contribution is tangible and impactful before the client has developed a brief, before things have settled in and assumptions are made. So Mm -hmm. I think that was one of the opportunities that we had in sort of building a a new way of thinking and and strategy development.
1: Now, you you did mention earlier about joining agencies where there's a a strategist or account planner's name on the door. Obviously, since the 2000s, there are many agencies that don't have Owners' names, let alone account planners' names on any door. Maybe there are no doors. We're post door, yeah. we're post planning, we're, we're post like names as company names. How could somebody now, if they're trying to work out if planning matters, how can they work it out? It's a bit of a mess out there. Not being dramatic, it's a bit of a mess out there. You know, we've got strategy slash account planning in more places than ever, probably with fewer places really knowing how to get the most out of them. And many of them, Many of those places blame the strategist or account planner, the individual for not being effective. How do you diagnose where to go right now?
0: That's a great question. People do ask me that sometimes. And usually I I suggest to them, go and look at the strategy process, whether it's a product development process or design development process or communication development process. Go and get the tools and go and look at the process. You know, do you have workshops at the beginning where the planners are involved? What are the frameworks that they have in place? What are they selling to their clients as a process? Go and look at their new business creds. You know, do they have a, a point of view and a philosophy for creating products, communications, design that includes strategic thinking. And that will give you the best understanding of whether strategy is integrated and valued internally because you will Mm -hmm. see it. You will literally see it in the work.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Lou, you've been a a rock star in the New York planning scene for a long time. You've probably taken meetings with recruiters and with agency management and you've been sold a a spiel that they have a philosophy, that they have a process. Yet, You and I both know that maybe, maybe Mm -hmm. not how does it feel as a senior person trying to navigate that stuff with very senior other people who are used to being persuasive to get people to believe what they're trying to do? Did you personally try to dig through that? Question one. Second question, do you feel that you ever were misled and or maybe projected an ideal situation that did not exist onto a conversation to convince you that planning existed and you should take that job?
0: Wow. I'll address the first one then about that kind of breadth of client or agency leader, some of whom understand the benefit of strategy and some of whom don't. It's interesting. I've often, you know, in my current role, work with agency leaders, many creative legends or whoever, who may not have had a great experience with strategists. And often it can sometimes be a result of the agency structure where the strategists didn't have the opportunity to collaborate with them. They were just sort of wheeled out occasionally throughout the process. With those folks, you just have to sort of collaborate with them to learn a different way of working. And I remember working with one creative whose name was over the door. I remember saying to him, look, we can keep doing it that way, but you're going to lose the business. We can do it your way, or we can work together and try this other way of doing the strategy where you will get to a better outcome and the client would be happy. And in the end, he actually ended up changing his process after you know a couple of mm-hmm. rounds of doing this. But there are also some who honestly just don't value strategy. I mean, one of the crazier experiences we've had, I remember once a head of an agency calling us in to help them with a problem, it was like nine o'clock in the morning, and the president of this global company was coming in at three o'clock and they had a creative campaign and they had no strategy for it. So the question was in five hours, can you help us back create the strategy against the brief that they set us that got us to this work. And we did. That's certainly not a strategy that I'm very proud of. But I don't think that person was ever going to learn because they just don't see the bigger picture for strategy. And I just think it's the way that they experienced it sort of in their career and, and they just didn't understand it. But I think, you know, if I'm just stepping back and to be fair for some of these CCOs, some of the most strategic thinkers I've met are really great creative directors. They can be extremely strategic It's just that they're not brought in or even exposed to some of the larger challenges. That's one of the reasons I've always believed that a problem solution, I know you've had this debate with some people on on your site. I agree with you on the problem solution piece that the business problem should always be on the brief because creatives need to see the bigger picture of the impact that they're making and what needs to happen. And this allows them to be much broader in understanding how to solve that problem. You know, there are also a lot of things theoretical navel-gazing strategists out there who, to a creative, just seem like people who come in and, and frustrate their efforts because they just talk a lot and bring in some slides and it doesn't seem to go anywhere and they can leave the creative feeling that it's not adding value. But a good strategist is there in the trenches with the creative and explaining and guiding and, and they can usually see the value.
1: Yeah, and and just to give people context about the problem solution thing, the the question, and it's a legitimate question, and I think we could ask it of ourselves on every single project we do, is based on recent marketing sciences that suggest that if a brand wants to stand for freshness, that they keep standing for that, that especially if they're a CPG or FMCG, that they continually advertise so that they stay on top of people's minds, that they try to attract people who are not necessarily loyal, but people who buy the product every now and then and that the job of the advertising is really just to reinforce memory structures using distinctive assets. I'm just trying to put all the little jargony buzzwords in there that that marketing sciences crew is right to bring up. The question though is because like a lot of us, I like to solve problems. Is like, well, isn't that just confusing things and making it difficult? So those things aren't opposites of each other. You want to think about both those things. The problem that we need to solve, which could be different to the problem we think the client needs to solve or the problem that the client says that they've got. And then maybe the job for this particularly campaign, doing a Super Bowl ad is is like brand assets, bring freshness to life if you want, be boring. But like these things kind of aren't opposites. Uh, and so to debate them isn't to say one isn't useful. It's to just try to work out when when they're useful.
0: Yeah. I do think that, you know, BBH always had a problem at the top of the page of their brief business problem to be solved. And I do think that that's, you know, you talked about rigor. That to me is a fundamental piece of rigor if you're starting at the comms level and you're not looking at their business and understanding what the business challenge is and where comms fits in there, then you're starting at the wrong spot. And it doesn't matter if you are changing the label on the can or, you know, you're really far downstream on the social media, you still need to know what the business challenges are and where this comms fits in. And that's why I think... Mm. A problem solution is just a really critical part of that. And I personally think that's what a good strategist is. A good strategist is someone who is able to really sharply define the problem and then creatively define it and solve it.
1: Yeah, And there are different categories of problem, but sometimes what can happen is a planner might be connected to an account and the account team comes in and they're like, our client's going away for two weeks and they need 10 videos. And the planner, hopefully the account person does this too, or the account team, but the planner might go, why do they need 10 videos? Oh, because there's a big, quote unquote, tentpole event happening. And it's like, yeah, but why would videos be useful to the tentpole? And you keep going, why, 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 until you actually might identify the problem that they need to solve, not really needing video, but... Your yeah. client might not want to hear it and your account team might not want to hear it. And by being honest about it, you might affect your own agency's you know, money. What's all that about? How do you deal with those situations when you're, again, trying to prove your worth?
0: Yeah. Well, I do think the end result proves your worth, which is that personally, actually stepping back from all of that, you know, your premise, which is just going upstream and actually understanding their business, clients always appreciate that, even if you're dealing with a lower level client who's frustrated that you keep questioning why they need to do something. I mean, most clients ultimately respect and want someone who is taking on the same uh, challenges that they face every day in their job. So, I think it's a sign of respect and rigor that you are going to actually just trying to find out the the bigger picture. Now, obviously you need to do some of your homework, you know, go and read their annual reports, you know, read all the marketing data, get a sense of how their business works, get a hypothesis for how whatever you're doing might be fitting in with that, and then go to them and say, so I I looked at the data and you're losing customers here. You know, what's your ultimate goal here? Are you trying to reduce churn with this or, you know, come in with some sort of semi-constructed hypothesis, but ultimately you're trying to define the problem for them. And I do, I mean, I think that's part of the job. I mean, I think that's exactly what they're hiring you to do, essentially. Yeah.
1: But come on, you, you've probably consulted to a ton of agencies in New York. Like I, I've been in some hundred people, a thousand people, and you look at, you know, 10 decks from recent pitches. And sometimes I'm like, why do I think? You know, there's such a culture of just selling and using a lot of information to sell. I really do get nervous that a planet could slow that down. And some of these companies are super successful without even knowing, this is true, without even knowing whether anything they do is effective because you usually go, oh, that's great. I'm happy to see these presentations. How did the work go? And the number of times people are like, I don't know. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you can get away with that? That's incredible. And wow, you have an international agency. Oh my gosh, hats off to you. Who the hell am I to have an opinion about any of this? Have you seen a bit of that as well?
0: Wow. Well, I also help agencies write um, Effie's paper. So I see a lot of the metrics. I certainly know the metrics are out there. I'd be surprised that agencies are not being held accountable to effectiveness metrics. I mean, this is, we are in the most data-heavy performance-driven environment ever. And when I'm looking at documents, most of the time, they are attached to KPIs and, and metrics. But I do hear what you're saying, particularly with large clients who, who do initiatives with the intention of being effective, but they just don't have the infrastructure in to monitor them. So, for example, experiential things often <laughs> there's a lot of money spent, but you know they, they just end up looking at impressions and you know there's not a lot of yeah. meat there. And I don't you know, I don't know if it's a systemic issue, but for the most part, you know, I I do think clients are kind of drowning in data. And if the agencies aren't connecting those two dots between what they're doing and the the metrics for success that come afterwards, then that that would be a real challenge.
1: And I'm not not saying that it's mainstream, although the number of case studies and award entries that I've seen where, and you know this, where the metrics are, and the whole internet paid attention. Uh, and there's a bunch of vanity metrics that that's huge out there, right? But I don't think all agencies, it's probably only a handful that I've seen, but it just blows me away that you can be an effective business without actually selling effectiveness. That's that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah. Last topic I want to get into is really trying to take this theme of proving your worth, proving your value into setting up a new strategy department where sometimes an agency is like, gosh, we need to get you know, a seat at the adult table, quote unquote, you always hear that. Or we want to get access to bigger briefs or we're not winning pitches because people are saying we're not being strategic. And so they'll either bring in a planner who might have one junior planner under them or they might elevate someone within the current company into the head of planning role. And then that person might ask around and go, how do I actually, now that I've got this role, Prove that I should A, keep it, two, that the company should invest more in it. So, you know, how might you help navigate someone? I know it's a vague, big question, a lot of like, what if this? What if that? What's the actual context here? What are the specifics? But any advice for someone who's trying to stand up a newish, strategy slash account planning department, especially in the U.S. right now?
0: Well, I think having a data scientist or someone on your team that you're working with who is able to put in place the metrics uh, for effectiveness would be one of the first things that you would want to do, especially if you don't have that internally, because you're never going to be able to argue for more budget, more investment if you're not proving metrics because you'll lose to the performance marketers because they can immediately tie what they're doing to sales metrics or performance metrics. And it's just good strategy today. I mean, we, we live in a, in a data-driven environment. So the idea that you can just come up with a big idea and then never see where it goes or how it gets implemented and prove that it was more effective than other things is to me sort of mind-boggling. Yeah, so you would want to obviously make sure that you have in-house the right team members who understand how to implement and measure and track across all the channels that you'll be tracking on because there's tons of them. And then Mm -hmm. I think the upstream opportunity as well would be to create a process and an IP for whatever agency or company you're working in that allows for strategic input upstream in the process whether that's identifying you know a brand purpose or cultural opportunity the media channels you know getting in early in the process and adding value one of the biggest opportunities i think a strategist can do is help To shape the brief and to your point earlier, define what the problem is before it's defined for you, or at least doing it in collaboration with the client. And that can only be done upstream because once you've been handed the brief for 10 videos, you don't know how or where this fits in the process. It's a bit too. I wouldn't say it's too late because you still want to fight for it, but you'll have a much better outcome, you know, looking earlier in the process. And I think that you know allocating strategy to midway or to the end of the process is a very old way of thinking about things. And it kind of goes back to almost like a TV broadcast way of strategic planning. You guys are the people who help the creatives figure out what the message is in the middle of this strategy process. Where really strategy today is should be very, very upstream Defining what the brand should contribute to the world and culture in terms of its brand purpose, what channels it should be in, you know innovation, packaging, all those sorts of things It should be very upstream. And even when you're getting to uh, the creative brief, I think the value is still upstream. And uh, I'll share with you something I once had a conversation with Jeff Goodby a very long time ago, where he had said, I think of strategists as the people who tell me where I should start fishing in the lake. And I said, well, That's true, but that's only showing half of the skills of a good strategist because often the client wants to start fishing in the Sahara, you know, and you've got to get him or her to say, hey, that's not where we should be. We need to be in a different, more fertile place, and you've got to move the client all the way to defining the problem differently or looking at the challenge in a different way. So if you don't have strategy set up as part of the process from the start and very upstream, it'll be very hard for strategy to add value to the process Mm -hmm. later on.
1: Got it. So culture and skills that can focus on effectiveness because then you can prove your value and then argue for more budget. And then you've got kind of philosophy and process baked in which could express themselves as IP, as a a way of working. And, you know, I I do feel that some of us can take IP a little too seriously where we're trying to trademark every little diagram we've ever done. (laughs) There's sort of a fluidity, I think, to to what you're talking about. And um, I guess I realized the fact that you didn't remember me after 10 years (laughs) that uh, Alana Bryant is as Jeff Goodby as I am to Alana Bryant. My last question, though... (laughs) Sorry, you remember, Not, no. you remember me after this. My, my last question is someone trying to set up a new department to prove their worth, who actually has an agency CEO, who's a CCO and is used to doing the strategy. How can you encourage space and trust over time so that that CCO slash CEO, it's pretty common from what I understand, uh-huh. especially in some of the smaller cities around the US. Like, how, how do you kind of get that person individually to start to loosen the reins to provide space for you and your team to come in so that you can prove your value?
0: Interesting. Well, I do think from a profit point of view, strategy and consulting is and can be a huge profit center for a lot of smaller agencies in that, obviously, for very little investment, relatively, you know, you are able to charge clients for your time and your thinking, and it's often actually more profitable in many ways than creative development. And it's certainly more profitable than creative development time that's wasted on mistakes. So, if I were going in with a CEO, I would probably go in with a, an added value and, and budget argument. It's much better to invest in getting strategy right and getting to the right brief before you start ideating, before you get, move into creative development or execution of any kind, because it's much more expensive to try and throw executions and creative solutions at something to define that problem and make sure that you're aligned with the client. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's much more profitable for the agency in terms of client's budgets. And also if it's done well, you will increase the amount of budget that's allocated. So, you know, going back to your effectiveness metric, you know, that's the way people invest today. It's test and learn, you know, they want to see what the metrics are after you've done something. And if it works, you'll get more budget. So it's sort of a win-win, I would say for agency management.
1: Awesome. I feel like there's at least a book or a very good video in you just talking about how to, you know, and I don't mean this in a cynical way, but basically how to whisper to CCOs who run the agency because you've, you've shared a few different <laughs> examples. And, and it does sound like your instinct is to immediately not talk to them about their identity and power, but really about money. So you, you do try to make it primal in, in that sense. But you must have thousands of these techniques. It'd be great to get them out of you somehow.
0: Yeah, that's very funny. Well, my philosophy has always been one of, of mutual respect and respecting the creative leadership as business-minded and ultimately wanting to do the right thing for their clients. You know, I worked with Steve Henry at Howl Henry, and he was the ultimate creative in my mind who did this. You know, he always wanted to find something in the client and also, you know, in the target audience that he identified with and wanted to do positive good. They didn't just want to make great communication that made them famous and got them awards. And the best creative minds are like that. goes back to your point earlier about the problem solution. I think respecting creatives intelligence and giving them the problem and saying, hey, you know, the real problem here is that they're in danger of being delisted at this, you know, retailer. And it's for these reasons. And sharing as much data to help them to understand the context I've always found is personally like a point of mutual respect. I've never seen a creative director that doesn't respect understanding the data, and understanding the marketing challenge if it's done well. You know, The Strategist is a broad title, and it covers, particularly in the U.S., people who've come from a million different types of backgrounds. You know, they have the same same label, but very different skill sets. And there are many strategists who are sort of practitioner strategists, and there are also kind of what I would call more passive intellectual strategists. And I'm more of a practitioner strategist, which means that I, at least or certainly when it comes to creatives, yeah, you know, I was always told the adage never give a creative a problem that you couldn't creatively solve yourself. So I never go into any meeting without a conversation I could have with a creative director where I'd say, here's my version of what could be done to solve this. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of strategists that don't do that. And they pass the problem on to the creative. So they couldn't oh, yeah. answer the brief, but they'll pass it on to the creative. And I think that's where you get a lot of cynicism from CCOs, where they've had somebody who's basically, <laughs> the client handed them a problem, the strategist then didn't solve the problem, just sort of handed it to the creatives. And Sorry. that's where they get pissed off. Anyway.
1: Totally. But like, also, I just want to point out one thing about the way that you're talking right now to listeners, not to you. Uh, You know, we talked about the power of problems and how some people are like, do we really need to solve a problem? Doesn't that make things difficult? The word danger. I love how you used it. And I don't know if I really used it in an intentional way, because problems captivate us. And they captivate us because if we see one, we might need to solve it so that we survive. It's built into us. And that's why I get frustrated with like optimism bullies who are like, we don't have problems, we have opportunities. Now, you've mentioned at least three dangers here. You talked to a CCO about the danger being we might lose the client. Another danger might be that the client is going to get delisted. The other danger was perhaps we're not going to grow as much as we need to grow. Danger, 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 danger. If you're listening to that word as I repeat it like that, you're like, oh gosh, what have I got to do? What have I got to do? And it's a really interesting persuasive technique, but it just triggers the brain to kind of get hungry and want to solve the thing. So it's for me to sort of talk around you as as you're here, but it's powerful stuff.
0: Can I build on that? Because I totally agree with that. And interestingly, I think of it also as an opportunity. Like strategy is like unpicking a lock, right? Like picking a lock, right? So I enjoy problems because I enjoy solving problems. And I always said, I, I enjoy your sweathead community. For me, it's like Sudoku. I just enjoy, you know, like a good crossword or Sudoku. So with, a good strategist, you're a great problem solver, and you're just solving different problems. And sometimes you can see patterns in the problems. Sometimes you learn a skill set from solving one problem that you apply to another. But I do think it's a really great thinking skill set. And great coders and hackers are also great lock pickers. They love solving problems. So if you, if you go to like White Ops, the hacker collective, um, they actually have a door in the lobby so that people could come in and pick the locks because it's all about how quickly can you solve this problem? And I just think it's the sign, it's a way of thinking, but it's also enjoyable to people who enjoy solving problems. And I think good strategists do enjoy solving problems. Yes, they enjoy creating things as part of the solution, but it's creatively solving problems, if that makes
1: sense. So maybe we think about this whole discussion being about the way to help planners show that one of their main values, one of their main worths, what they bring to the table, I'm using those words in a kind of incorrect way, is is a focus on danger. I like that. It's more elevated than problem. And I think people will remember it. Alana, Mm -hmm. where can people find you on the internet?
0: Specialforcesny.com. We've always been sort of off the radar. I actually didn't even have contact information until like five years ago because we were sort of like a little bit of a covert collective. We do stuff under the radar, but I do do have a website there. And there's, you know, contact me if people want to contact. We're a collection, as we say, problem solvers. And that's hence Special Forces. That's why I made the company, which is people who are there on a mission to do something. Uh, Usually it's to solve something and remedy something and do it with whatever tools they have.
1: Wonderful. Well, may companies continue to enjoy sending you into danger and may you continue <laughs> en- enjoying it. such danger. Alana, it's been great to catch up and a bit of a kick. And it's just this weird coincidence that I happened to be talking to you 10 years after I came to New York, oh. which was like a really meaningful time for me just to be able to meet people and see what was going on. So thanks for well, meeting me back then. And thanks for chatting with me now.
0: Thanks. And I'm so glad that you're here and that um, you've built such a great community and a growing media empire. And that uh, I'm, also th- <laughs> I'm also thankful that you're just, you know, forgiving me for my uh, memory lapse. And uh, it's just, I'm just old. So just put so, it down to that. So
1: cool. But what I'm not going to forgive you for is the fact that you didn't talk about my growing mullet. Okay, it's a running joke with me. We're like two and a half years into it. My mullet didn't get a shout out in your list of things that were growing. But yeah, totally yeah, cool. I, um,
0: I thought they were dreads, actually. I was going to ask if I could <laughs> see little things coming out. I didn't know whether they were kind of dreads or little braids far, or just-
1: I've never been diagnosed with OCD, but I reckon I've got a bit of it. And sometimes I put little braids in my hair, but whatever. Hey, it's all good. <laughs> just be you, right? Do you. Alana, thank you so much for joining me on Spadehead today. Peace. <laughs>